0: Hey everyone, and welcome to Ask Shane Anything, and that means just one thing. It is Friday! <laughs> Hope you guys have had a good week. Sorry to have missed you on Game Face this week, but as you know, I had my sister in town who was visiting and is still visiting, um, and there was also a national holiday on Tuesday, and unfortunately, we just couldn't get the show together. So, Game Face will be back on Tuesday and we'll have a bunch of big games to discuss. Should be a great show. We'll see you there. Um, As you guys know, this show is where you can ask me about literally anything. Games, my life, love interest, whatever. I'm here for you people. This is possible because some of you guys pledge at $7 or more per month. Without that, this show wouldn't happen. But we do allow everyone to watch the archive and... We do allow everyone to ask questions, though we do prioritize those of you who are pledging at higher tiers. We have a bunch of great questions for today's episode. Let's get straight to them. All right, our first question for today's episode comes from Mountain Lifter. We've gotten Pac's take on the Apple Vision Pro. Give us your take on it. Give us your prediction on where it will be five and ten years from now. Do you see yourself using it daily if you got one? How is it going to affect the already middling VR market? What did you like most and least about it? Lastly, what do you think of Apple and Apple products overall? Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a lot of questions. Um, I kind of talked about Apple Vision Pro on Game Face with Matt for a good bit. Um, However, that was quite a while ago. That was just when it was announced, and some new details have come out, and maybe my thinking around it's changed a little bit. Uh, The first thing I should mention is that over the last few days, Apple has kind of leaked out that it is having problems manufacturing the headset right now it's having problems sourcing all the parts it's having problems with the manufacturing lines getting them right Um, it is a very complex product and while there have been tons of other vr head-mounted displays none have been quite as complicated or expensive to be honest with you as apple vision pro so the first thing is It looks like the launch of this thing is going to be very soft, meaning they're going to have appointments to buy it. You go into the Apple Store, you make an appointment, then you go into the Apple Store to check it out, and then you buy it. Um, I guess the first thing I would say is for the vast majority of people, 90% of consumers, the first few years of this thing aren't going to mean anything. Um people may stumble across wealthy people who have them or just crazy Apple fanboys who have them. Um, One thing that I saw during the whole crazy um, Titanic submarine tourism thing where the uh, sub imploded going down to the Titanic was there was a woman who had gone on one of those expeditions before who was not wealthy at all. And each seat in that sub cost $250,000. Now, some information came out later where if the sub wasn't full, he would start sending texts to people negotiating at cheaper rates, but generally you had to pay $250,000 to go on the sub, and there was one woman who had went and survived the time before it imploded, and she had spent the two hundred fifty k, and she was not wealthy at all. She had basically saved her entire life and never bought a house so she could see the Titanic. So one thing I've learned through that, and just general living, is that there are some people who will put themselves out to buy things that they want. I'm kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm very paranoid about like being broke and not having money, um, so I don't buy stuff for myself hardly at all anymore. Honestly, um, I mean, part of that is I'm older and I have most of the stuff that I want or the most of the stuff that I need. Um, but I'm very conservative with what I, with buying stuff. Like I don't ever just go crazy and just buy something that's irresponsible. But there's a lot of people that do. Um, And so maybe the demand for this thing might be higher than people are thinking, but at $3,500, that's a really tough ask. Some people have mentioned that the Apple Watch, when it launched, was kind of the same deal. People thought it was insane to spend that much on it. Um, And also, by the way, you had to buy them with an appointment, um, just like you're going to have to with Apple Vision Pro. So there are some parallels between the two products there. Obviously now, Apple Watch is this thing that everybody has, and it's a new revenue stream for Apple. Um, So I think the first few years of Apple Vision Pro, it's going to be a dud. Not that people will dislike it. It's just so expensive, it's out of reach for most people. So I don't think there will be a big zeitgeist around Apple Vision Pro out of the gate. Um, Where will it be in 5 to 10 years, though? I think in 5 years, it will start coming down in price to the point where I wouldn't say the average person would buy it, but at least the average person might start considering it. Um, I do think the adoption is going to be way slower for Apple Vision Pro than it was for Apple Watch because it's a bigger bet. It's way more expensive. Even in five years, it's going to be way more expensive. So I think the first thing that Apple needs to do is they need to get the price to around $1,000. And I know that's still like double almost what most like high-end VR helmets cost. Um, but at $1,000, there's enough people out there that it could become a big success and it could become a status symbol. Um so i think in 10 years you're going to start approaching mass consumer level for apple vision pro and by then they will have had three or four iterations of it it'll look better it'll play better it will be lighter which i've heard is a really important thing it's apparently these new ones the at least the launch units are so well built that they're heavy um and that's been a big complaint um you know the other hmd manufacturers don't use plastic because they're trying to be cheap they use it because of weight Uh, weight is important with an hmd anything you're mounting on your head over time your neck's going to get tired if it's really heavy so i think in 10 years all that stuff's going to be sorted apple will be like you know what everyone else is right we do need to make this out of plastic to make it more comfortable Um, and so i think in 10 years it'll be around a thousand dollars and then the question becomes does it replace the iphone because i do think that that is what apple's ultimate goal is it's like I don't think it's trying to recreate a new revenue stream. I think it's trying to protect its current revenue stream with the iPhone. And so I think, you know, while we're all kind of freaking out about, oh, it's $3,500. This is a long play for Apple. This isn't something that they're hoping to launch in a year and everyone's going to want it. And it's going to be the sensation. Obviously, they'd love if that were the case. But Apple's smart. And I think Apple um, realizes that right now it's out of reach for most consumers and will be kind of a niche product. Ten years from now, I think that'll be a different story. And the question again, the question becomes, does it replace the iPhone as something that we use to communicate with others and use all the various apps? I mean, it's no coincidence that the debut media that Apple has put out uh, for the Apple Vision Pro has been kind of using apps and not really for gaming because I think they want to start imprinting on people that this can replace your phone someday. Um, so... I think that's the goal with Apple vision Pro. Again, I think Apple's playing the long game with it. I don't think they expect or it expects this to happen overnight. Um, I think a lot of um, there's gonna be a lot of evangelists out there over time. people who are crazy and spend the $3500 and then people get to see it and try it. Um, so that'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how Apple demos it at its Apple stores. I think that'll be an important component to it. Um, do I see myself using it daily if I got one? right now maybe not it depends like my lifestyle is a little different so uh, my wife generally has to get up earlier than i do for work so she goes to bed a little bit earlier than i do most nights not every night but most nights um and so a lot of times like you know i respect her and i want to make sure that she gets good rest so i will play games with headphones on or whatever and so i could see for me apple vision pro actually having some daily functionality for me where i would use it at night. when I'm trying to respect my wife's ability to get some rest. So, maybe... um, I also, you got to remember, I have terrible motion sickness problems with VR. So, I'm not even viewing this thing, really, as something that I would use to play VR. Now, I would hope that Apple Vision Pro would be the VR that would not make me sick, considering the price tag, however... PlayStation VR 2, I kind of thought that about, and that was not the case. I still get sick from VR. So, I'm not even looking at this device, honestly, as like a game-playing device the way probably most of you guys are. I'm looking at it more as like a daily driver functionality thing. So, to answer your question, would I use it every day? Probably. I think I actually would. Um, How will it affect the already middling VR market? I think it could open some people's eyes to VR that have shut themselves off from it so far because Apple is kind of a Trojan horse. Like a lot of people don't trust technology until Apple does it, which is a little weird, but it's just kind of the truth. So I do think it may ingratiate VR to a wider audience. Do I think it will help people maybe go pick up a, a MetaQuest 3 or buy some other VR HMD? I doubt it. Um, I think most of the people that this would convert are probably Apple people who would like to buy Apple's HMD but may not care about some of the others. And again, I think a lot of the people may be, be more like me where they're not necessarily getting it to play games. They're getting it to be this all-in-one kind of functional functional headset thing. So I don't think it will affect the VR gaming market all that much, particularly initially. Um, and what I like most and least about it, what I like most about it is the pass-through, the see-through. Not that you can see through it because a lot of VR... Uh, Helmets do that, but that other people can see your eyes. As they say, the eyes are the window to the soul. You can read so much about what someone is trying to say or do by their eyes. So I think that that is one of those Apple things that it figured out before everyone else. And I have a feeling that most high end VR HMDs and AR HMDs are going to have that feature going forward. I think that's really cool. Like not having to take off the helmet. So that you can communicate with other people. I think it's really important. And that they can see you. And they can communicate with you. And they don't feel closed off. Because one thing I'll say about VR is like when you're doing it, you are off in la-la land. And nobody can interact with you. It's like when you see someone using VR, it's almost like a getaway thing. Where you're like, oh, they could swing the controller around and hit me. And they can't see me anyway. And I think Apple Vision Pro could fix some of that. So that's my favorite thing. And then probably my least favorite thing... Um, Well, I also like that it's not tethered. Um, I also like the idea that the battery pack is something that you can upgrade instead of having to upgrade the entire helmet. Um, A lot of people see the tether on the Apple Vision Pro, and they think that it's connected to, like, a Mac or their iPhone. It's not. Um, It's completely self-contained. That tether is going to a battery pack that powers it. Um, And so you could conceivably just buy better batteries instead of having to buy a new headset that has more life in it. So I like that as well. I think that's really smart. The thing I like the least about it, obviously, is the price. I think everybody feels that way about it. It's just too expensive. Am I going to be able to afford one? No, I can't I can't afford $3,500 for something like that right now. So I'm going to be the late adopter. And I did the same thing with iPhone, to be honest with you. Um, I had a BlackBerry up until iPhone 5. iPhone 5 was the first iPhone I ever had. Um, and I didn't miss it. Like, I loved the BlackBerry. I love typing on the BlackBerry. I, I've said this before, but I once wrote an entire review for madden on a flight on my blackberry i could type like 50 words permitted on my blackberry so i did not want to change uh over to iphone and then i finally did and of course i was like i probably should have done this earlier and whatever so i'm not the early adopter for apple i kind of wait until they figure out all the bugs and until honestly i'm ready to move on to the new technology um so Yeah, the price to me is easily the biggest deterrent. I think everyone's going to agree with that. I think everyone watching this is probably like, yeah, $3,500 is too much for a consumer-level device. Um, Lastly, what do I think about Apple in general? I think Apple is still genius. I know a lot of people are like, oh, the new leadership isn't... They haven't invented anything like an iPhone. Well, here, it gets harder and harder. As new things are invented, it's harder to invent something new. So it's not fair to compare the people who are working at Apple now versus the people who are working at Apple back in the 80s and 90s, because a lot of this stuff hadn't been invented yet. Every time something new is created, it's harder to create something new. So they're up against the eight ball. But here's what I really think about Apple that's impressed me over the last, I don't know, eight years. Is that Apple realized that the phone market was going to not go away, but they realized that their phones are being designed in a way that people will not need to upgrade as often as they did. Remember back, like from the Apple Four to the the iPhone Four to the iPhone Five to the iPhone Six, everybody was ditching the Four to get the Five and ditching the Five to get the Six. That doesn't happen anymore. Like I have an iPhone, I don't even know what it is now. Eleven, I think. And it's like up to 14 like i you know i'm not the guy who's gonna be upgrading every time anyway but you just really don't need to like i see people with the new iphone and i'm like okay i can maybe see a little bit of difference but not really so i think as apple has realized that people aren't going to be upgrading as much they started looking at ways to bolster their business when they lost money from hardware in all honesty and what it's done is it's built itself into a services business it makes more money on services now than it does off of iphones it just created this business out of nowhere like i also saw somewhere that just the airpods business alone at apple is like a bigger business than like almost all of the fortune 500 companies i mean you can go on and on about how great apple is it just is um <laughs> You know, people, every once in a while, they're like, well, you know what, what stock should I buy? Buy Apple stock. <laughs> like, there, there's no surer bet for your investment to pay off than buying Apple stock. It Just look at the data. It just continually goes up. and never stops. So, I think Apple's a great company. I'm not an Apple fanboy or fangirl, as you know. I'm a late adopter. I didn't even jump on the iPhone until the iPhone 5. Uh, but I think there are still tons of brilliant people there who are way, way smarter than me. Um, and so I, I don't know, I, am not an Apple fan per se, but I'm happy with all their products. And I think what they do is generally really, really smart. <coughs> all right. Next up, we have a question from Neojd. D first Alan Wake two, and now like a dragon Gaiden will be digital only while both are being offered at a lower cost. I'd rather have them physically. How do you feel about this? Is this going to become a new trend? Okay, so what NeoJD JD is talking about here is that there are new, and I would call them AAA, quadruple A games, whatever you want to call them, big budget games that typically um, have sold physical and probably will sell pretty well. These two games in particular, they are never, ever releasing physical versions of the games. Now, here's what I think. I think they'll change their minds eventually and they'll do some kind of like limited run physical where they maybe charge more than $70 for the physical version of the games. But as of right now, the messaging is that there will never be physical versions of either one of these games. And it is kind of a new trend that hasn't really happened yet with big games. There's been like B-level games where they're like, you know, it's probably not worth doing a physical run of this. I can kind of get that. Uh, but for big budget games to not have a physical version, this is something new. And I agree with you, NeoJT. I don't like it. I do like physical games. And I think what you and I both have to accept is that we are increasingly becoming the minority. For a long time, it was like 50-50 digital sales to physical sales. Now the digital is starting to creep up over 50%. And it's to the point where a lot of people are just like, I just don't want a bunch of clutter. And I'll be honest with you, you know as I've gotten older, I am, I am moving in that direction. Um, I've been in this apartment for a really long time now and we're completely out of storage. I have no place to put anything else. So anything that I buy that's gonna take up physical space in my apartment now, I think really hard about it. Like, where's it gonna go? Can I hide it? What about the stuff that it displaces? Will I be able to hide that stuff? Or is it gonna be piled up somewhere? I think about that stuff now. Now again, I'm living in an apartment. If I had a house with an attic and a garage and a lot of storage, I may think about things differently. But that's just my situation. So I am slowly transforming over to... The idea of digital only, but I still like physical. The other thing that's kind of pushing me towards digital, though, is that I don't feel like a lot of the games that we're buying now are going to be worth something someday. I just don't. Um, you talk about the big games that sell fifteen to twenty million; those are never going to be worth anything. And there aren't like a lot of niche games that kind of hit big um, with. You know, there's like a subculture around there. That stuff doesn't really happen as often as it used to anymore. Because one, they're just not releasing as many games as they used to. So the cultural zeitgeist game that ends up soaring in value, like a god hand, is kind of an example of that, I guess. Um we just don't get much of those anymore. And so that stuff is kind of pushing me towards digital. Um, I'm looking at like I have a gigantic Xbox 360 game collection, and I look at that now and like it's pretty long after the 360 was sent out to pasture, and really none of those games are worth hardly anything. So, I'm really starting to kind of understand the digital-only future. Again, I think if I had different living arrangements, it might change a little bit. But I feel your pain. Um, I do have some games that are worth a lot of money. But most of them are like GameCube games, PlayStation 1 games, PlayStation 2 games. They're not really games from the last, like, three generations. They're, the value of that stuff just hasn't really gone up. The only thing that's really generating any value are collector's editions of games, which I think that they'll always release because they generate a lot of money. Games that you can sell for 100 hundred, two hundred $200 that come with a statue or whatever those still increase in value, and then limited edition consoles and handhelds, those still generate money as far as like increasing in value over time, but most games do not. So, unfortunately, NeoJD, I think both you and I are fighting an uphill battle, and I do think there's a good contingent of players like that on Sifted in general, but I think our days are sunsetting. Hi-ya! Next up, we have a question from Cinetyke. Hey Shane, we've seen a lot of trailers recently between all the showcases. It seems like there's a lot of good games between 2023 and 2024. But my question is, how have the trailers and announcements changed over the years? It feels like lots of CG trailers have come out, which are divisive in reception. How does it compare across the years? Personally, I'm totally at a point in my life where if it's coming within a year and the trailer doesn't use gameplay, I'm instantly out. I have increasingly little time to spend with games. I guess what I would say is that trailers have not changed much in like 10 years. (laughs) And basically what's happened is PR folks have established a pattern of how to market games. And most marketers have refused to stray from that pattern. So you get the same thing almost every time with every game. Well, I'll say every game that has at least a moderate budget, a a moderate marketing budget. So what happens is you get a debut trailer and 70% of the time, I would, I'm just guessing, 70% of the time, I would say it's a CG trailer. And then after that, you get the gameplay trailer. And the gameplay trailer is a cinematic trailer. It's like cut together dramatically, but it generally uses all in-engine footage so you can see how the game actually looks. And then after that, you generally get an overview trailer that goes over all the features of the game and generally using mostly gameplay. And from there, it's like, it depends on the game. You'll get character profiles for a fighting game. You'll get map profile trailers for shooters. So generally, the first three pieces of media are the same for almost every game. And then depending on the genre or depending on the game, things change a little bit over time. They figure out how to fill out the rest of that promotional schedule generally. Um... But otherwise, like, it hasn't changed, man. (laughs) Like, the only thing that's changed is, I can't remember what year it was, but, I don't know, probably 10, 15 years ago, someone stepped in and said, look, if you are going to publish a CG trailer, you legally now have to mention somewhere in the trailer that the footage is not in-game, that it is pre-rendered, that it does not represent what the game actually looks like, And so they all do that now. Almost every trailer that has CG in it now is not in-game footage or is not representative of how the game looks or whatever. There's some kind of a disclaimer there. So that was a big change, but it wasn't a change in how they promoted the games. Back in the earlier days, the CG trailers were so much better looking than the actual games that you didn't need to say, like, okay, this isn't actually in-game. And then it gets a little messier when you talk about games that had a lot of CG in them, like Final Fantasy VII or whatever, because then you had CG in the game, so technically you could put the CG in the commercial, and then it's still representative of the game. But generally, CG in-game, huge difference. As games started to look better in real time, that's when the law stepped in and was like, hey, things are starting to get a little blurry here. You need to tell us when you're showing us CG. So, that's kind of the history of the video game trailer and how it works and kind of how marketing and and PR works for most games now. So again, you get the CG trailer, you get the gameplay trailer, you get the overview trailer, and then from then it can change based upon what the game is or what the genre is. So I think that it hasn't changed all that much. Um, I do agree with you that publishing a CG trailer late in a game's development cycle is wrong, but I don't that doesn't happen like i i don't know maybe you have an example that you can leave in the comments of what you're talking about but i just i just simply don't remember like cg trailers every once in a while like blizzard i think might put out like a cg launch trailer and a gameplay launch trailer in fact i think diablo 4 had four launch trailers when it was all said and done that is out of the ordinary that does not happen very often at all typically it follows the pattern that i just said Now. There are some cases where your rule can be broken. For example, if you think about... I think it was Fallout 4. Announced by Bethesda and released three months later. So, if you in that case, are you okay getting the CG trailer? And then three months later, the game coming? Like, I try to never use the word never... Or use the words never or always. Absolute. I try to stay away from them because I've been burned. I've burned myself using those before. So... Using a hard and fast rule of like, oh, it's a CG trailer, I'm out. That seems a little extreme to me, particularly because let's be honest, like most games now, we're not getting these like announcement trailers and then the game comes out five years later. Now Bethesda, obviously, with Elder Scrolls Six, there are some exceptions, but generally that doesn't happen anymore. Usually games are announced. Nintendo's really good at this, announcing a game and then it comes out three months later. And I think a lot of publishers are kind of that way. Um, so you know, to say that as soon as you see CG, you stop watching, I mean, I get it, man, my time is precious, let me tell you, especially this week, with my sister and my nephew here, like, I just need to find, like, 20 minutes here, 10 minutes there to work, because the other thing, too, is they're staying in this room, (laughs) and so, if they sleep in, I can't work, if they stay up late, I can't work, so it was just, all this week, it's been me, like, trying to shuffle my time, trying to get anything done, um, so I get that, like, my time is really tight, but, I like CG trailers because a lot of times they're just there to portray the idea of the game or the tone of the game while looking as good as possible. Now I do understand casual people can be fooled by them. We're not casual people. Come on, <laughs> we, we know what's going on. We know a CG trailer what it's for is to get you excited about the idea of the, or the concept of the game and show it in as br- in as bright a light as possible. So. I don't know, Cinetyke, um if I can agree with you on too much here. I do get the whole idea that you're short on time. But, I mean, most trailers are 60 seconds long. Are you really counting those that extra 30 seconds that you didn't watch? I don't know. Um, so I think trailers have gotten better over time. I think the way they edit them. Although, using trailers for B-roll, one thing I've, I've noticed about them that's really annoying to me and I'm sick of is the dip to black. Every video game trailer, doom, and it goes to black. And then it's, the shot comes back doom goes to black and the shot comes back that gets a little old like it's the cheapest tactic for video and not just video game trailer they do it in movie trailers too it's like the cheapest tactic but you know i am editing with these things all the time i have to cut out those dips to black all the time it's really annoying so that might tie into it a little bit but generally i don't think the video game trailer has changed all that much over time its purpose has remained the same the sequence of of what type of trailer they release has remained the same over time. Um, I just think that the technology, the CG that they're using, and the editors, in all honesty, have been have improved over time. So I think video game trailers are better than ever. Although I will say this, it's been harder to surprise me over time. And again, that goes back to what I was saying about Apple. Once something's done, you can't you it can't surprise people with it again. So it becomes more difficult to surprise people. We've all seen. A million video game trailers, it's really hard after that to make a big impression. So I think they're better than ever, but I also think that they have a tougher job than ever. (laughs) Next up, our question from Kevin, who makes it into every episode of Ask Shane Anything. Can you talk about some of your biggest scoops or stories that you have uncovered while working as a games journalist? Okay, so here's the thing. There are different types of games journalists. There are some people who are news editors where it's really their entire job to dig for scoops and break scoops. And then there are people like me. I've never technically been a news editor. I, When I first started at GameSpot, when I was green and just starting in the industry, I was a news editor at times. They're like, news editor's out. Shane, you need to step in. And those days were brutal. I would write 20-plus news stories in an eight-hour shift, something like that. And um, as I've said in the past, I would call the publishers for every story to get a quote, and most of the time it was just like no comment. But that's still a comment sometimes. So I've haven't done a ton of work in the news space as a games journalist, and so it was never my job to really break scoops. And because of that, publishers and developers would tell me stuff because they didn't expect me. I wasn't Jason Schreier. I wasn't Kotaku. I was the guy who ran the awesome video content over at Game Trailers, and you did reviews, but you're not trying to scoop and stuff like that. So they would tell me stuff, but here's the thing. Um, in my case, and the places I was working where I was really starting to get scoops was Game Trailers, because I was the EIC there and kind of the leader of the content there. It's a cost-benefit analysis. So we didn't have a blog until the end when, you know, the the powers that be gave us one employee to compete with Kotaku, which is hilarious. Um, We never had a blog or any place to even really break news. The only place I could have broken news was on invisible walls. And I did sometimes. Like, the one story I broke was that Milo was faked and... That got some pickup. Like, every once in a while, I would break something that I figured out on my own. Not necessarily something that someone told me, but something that I would discover in public. So that was in public when I figured out Milo was fake. Um, That was at, like, an event with a bunch of journalists and things like that. And I just so happened to catch some things that were happening behind the scenes that other people didn't see. That kind of stuff I would break. But as far as, like, a PR person telling me something or a developer telling me something... A lot of times i would not share that i would not break that news one because we never really a vehicle to do it but two because it would hurt us in other ways because if you remember at game trailers literally every day i locked down an exclusive you could if you went to gt every single day we had an exclusive trailer or an exclusive piece of gameplay every day it was insane And between Jeff and I, Jeff leveraged the TV show on Spike TV to get exclusives, and so they would air it on the show first, and then we would put it up on the website, and sometimes we'd only have like 12 hours of exclusivity on the trailer or whatever on GameTrail, but whatever. But we, we were just driving so much video traffic that I could just call publishers and be like, what are your trailers for the next week? They'd tell me, and I'd be like, okay, we can give that one on Tuesday a top slot. We can give this one on Thursday a top slot. And so... When you build those relationships where you're trying to lock down exclusives, it's not worth it to break stories. Do you think that Jason Schreier knows more about what's going on than Jeff Keighley? He does not. Jeff Keighley knows more about what's going on behind the scenes and what games are coming than anyone. And he doesn't break any of those stories because it would be stupid. Why would you burn your contacts at Ubisoft or Nintendo for some story they are going to publish that's not even going to get picked up anymore. Because the other thing is that with social media, no one's even going to go to your page. So it's like, think about Jason Schreier. He works at Bloomberg. There's a paywall there. Is Bloomberg really getting the action off of the stories that he breaks? No. Twitter is getting all the action. Facebook is getting all the action. Not Bloomberg. Because... It's a paywall and people are like, I can't go there anyway, so I'll just read what everyone's writing about it on social media. So that is all changed. So there's very little benefit to leaking stuff like that. That's why you see most of the time people you've never heard of who are working at smaller publications leaking stuff because they have nothing to lose. There's too much to lose if you're a real player in games content to break stories like that. It's IGN. Do you think IGN doesn't know a lot of the stuff that's coming out? They do. They're working on marketing programs right now behind the scenes about that stuff. They do know. But it's not worth burning the bridges with the PR person or the developer or the publisher because you're going to need them. IGN's going to need them at Gamescom to come on their stage and demo their games. If you totally spoiled that game and said, oh, there's this blah, blah, blah coming from blah, or is blah, blah, blah going to come on your stage? No. So... I think what people don't get about the games industry is there's a lot of, um, it is kind of like siloed. It's like, these are the people that you know are going to break the news. And in all honesty, publishers and developers know who those people are and don't talk to them. Instead, they talk to the people like I was at Game Trailers, people who have a lot of sway over how content gets distributed. Um, And if you build a good relationship with those people, then your content will get distributed very well. And it's a symbiotic relationship between the publication and the publisher and the developer. And that's just kind of how it plays out. So I was never in a position where I could or even wanted to really break stories. And honestly, I would know about the stuff. I wouldn't break it. But if you watched Invisible Walls every once in a while, I would use that information to shape my opinion. So I may say, I think blah, blah, blah is gonna happen when in fact, I knew blah, blah, blah was gonna happen. (laughs) All right, our last question for today's episode comes from Don Lionheart. If you had more free time, like Game Face wasn't a thing that you had to play games every week to be ready for, would you play games deeper, finish them, or replay them? Or would you spend the free time doing something else like movies, reading, going out, etc.? Okay, I hate to say it, but this is an easy question for me. Um, If I had more free time, I would go outside. (laughs) I would be exercising. I would be in much better shape than I am right now. Um, My job is killing me. That's just the truth. I have to sit on my butt like 18 hours a day, either playing games or sitting here at this computer, recording S-chain anything or curating or writing scripts or editing videos. Pretty much everything I do designed for me to plant my butt right here and never leave so if i were to have some more free time i would be out doing stuff exercising i would be going out more i would be going to hear my friends dj a lot more but it's like if i know i have a game to play even on the weekends i start playing games on the weekends at like seven or eight in the morning because i need that time so even if i were to go out on a friday or a saturday night it's gonna cramp me on saturday and sunday when i need to be working and playing games so in all honesty I would have a completely different life if I wasn't working in this industry. Um, Because it is tough. It's like you work your eight-hour... I mean, let's be honest. I work 12-hour days usually. But you work your work day, and it's not over. Like most of y'all, you get off work, you go home, you eat dinner, and you have the whole night to do whatever you want to do. You get off work on Friday today, yay. You got the whole weekend ahead of you. You can choose whatever you want to do for the entire weekend. The sky's the limit. You can go wherever you want to go, do what you want to do, hang out with who you want to That doesn't work for people who work in this industry. You do the nuts and bolts of the job all day, and then you got to play. It's, (laughs) I know people are like, you're lucky you play games for a living. I really wonder how many people would be able to do what we do for more than a month, because you guys are conditioned to have your free time. I'm conditioned to not have my free time. Um, So what would I do if I didn't have to do Game Face and play a ton of games? I would go out and I would do stuff. I would touch grass. (laughs) be out there like I've been trying to get into like pickleball like it's like basically like um like court tennis it's like a very simple like it's not as hard on the joints is what I'm getting it's tennis without the physical punishment so I've been trying to get into that there's like a league going down at Venice Beach that I'm trying to get into I just can't do it I just don't have the time I can't be there when the league has its games um it's I mean this job kills you it literally kills you so if you find people who work in this industry who are over 30 and are at least a little bit overweight? I, I, I point me in their direction because I need to figure out how they're doing it. Because I have been trying to do this for twenty some years and I haven't figured out how to do it yet. I go through phases where I'll get like crazy in shape, um, and then I'll stop because of my job. And then slowly the weight comes back until I get to where I am now. And then I'll do. But I'm getting old now. Like I can't. Before I did like in the insanity workout, where like for three months I just worked out like crazy and was really dedicated to it and cut like all this weight and since then, just slowly adding the weight again, it's, I don't think it's healthy, I don't think it's a great way to live, it's probably gonna take 10 years off of my life, ultimately, but at the same time, I am kind of lucky to be doing this, despite all the hard work that's involved, so, um, yeah, I would, would I go to movies? No, I'm totally fine watching movies on my TV, like, I never go to the movies anymore, I go to watch Star Wars movies, I try to go see Avatar, it just didn't work out, ended up watching that on my TV, like, with my surround sound and my TV, I don't need to go to the theater anymore. So I wouldn't do that. Would I read? I mean, the internet, sure. Like, I read all the time, but it's only it's on the internet. I don't really read books, per se. I would go out a lot more, and I would exercise a lot more. I definitely miss uh, those parts of life that most people have. All right, that's it for Ask Shane Anything. I hope you guys have a banner weekend. A lot of you guys are probably finishing off some of the big games from last month. You're playing Diablo 4. You're playing Street Fighter, which I have played a ton of against my nephew here over the last like week and a half. Uh, we got to play a lot of head-to-head against him, which is great. Uh, maybe you're still trying to finish off Zelda, all that stuff. July is here. There are some pretty big games coming out this month, but uh, it's really hard to beat June. That was a great month for games. So I hope you guys are still enjoying all that stuff. Hope you guys have had a great week. We'll be back on Tuesday for Game Face. Lots of big games to discuss there. We'll see you then.